Welcome to my podcast, Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold. This is episode 13, Opium. Just a real quick review. The last episode, I talked about the death of the Emperor Jiaqing and that he named his second son to succeed him as the emperor to the Qing dynasty. I referred to the last episode as High Qing. And it should be no surprise to anyone, and it certainly will not be after this present episode, that the Qing dynasty was at now at its height geographically, politically, and economically. We will see the continuation of the Western powers to noticeably encroach on China and assert their control and agendas. The period of time that I got into with the last episode and this current episode takes us pretty much through almost the first half of the 19th century. It marks huge change in the relationship of the Qing dynasty and Western powers. Up to this point of time, the Qing foreign policy, the Qing dynasty foreign policy, relied on three basic assumptions. Number one, the Chinese were militarily superior than other nations. Number two, China had a way of cynicizing outsiders. Number three, China had nice things. And everyone else in the world wanted to buy those things. And so outsiders were willing to pay tribute to China in order to get those things. All three, however, were badly out of date, particularly the last assumption. China did not understand or participate in the Western Industrial Revolution that was ongoing at that time. Before now, Western powers came to China to buy things. Now, however, Western powers came to China for markets. And this is fundamentally the change. This changed everything. This is a very key premise So let's get into the new emperor. He was born September 16th, 1782, at the Forbidden City in Peking, China. His personal name was Aishin Jielo Mianing. He was more commonly known by his official name, and the name I'm going to use 
Daoguang. Interestingly, he was the first Qing emperor who was, leg- who was the legitimate oldest son of the previous emperor. Let me explain. I did state that Daoguang was the second son of Jiaqing. So how can what I said be correct? Simple. His older brother's mother was a concubine of Jiaqing, his father. And under the then-existing and confusing hierarchical rules, Daoguan was in a better position because his mother was Jia Qing's wife. Got it? Anyway, he ascended the throne in 1820 after his father's death. He was 38 years of age. And he found the Chinese treasury just about depleted. And probably as a result of that, he was alleged to be frugal and austere. He insisted that imperial imperial household members wear patched clothing rather than buy new things. Apparently, he was a well-meaning man, but ineffective. He was described as tall and lanky and had a dark complexion. Balancing, however, that were rumors that he was a debaucher, that he suffered considerable physical deterioration as time went by. This has been speculated to be caused by Various quackeries is alleged he tried in order to increase his physical strength. There's also some evidence that he might have been an opium addict. Nevertheless, whatever it was, this left him toothless and hollow-cheeked. Daoguan's reign began the initial onslaught into China by Western imperialism and foreign invasions. Like his father, Daoguan's reign was constantly plagued by events he could not control. Not surprisingly, that Daoguan's reign was marked by external disaster and internal rebellion. Early in his reign, he had to deal with an uprising in the Turkestan, Xinjiang province area. It is well known this area at the periphery of the west-northwest border of China has always been, had always been a challenge, and a recurring one at that. Early in the uprising, the small Chinese garrison there were massacred. Daoguang was forced to dispatch a large army to that area. The 20,000 men plus army only had limited success, however, and was unable to fully quell the uprising. There would be continual fighting in this area for another 20 years. The Qing permanently lost 
several cities resulting from this uprising in the Xinjiang province. This finally resulted in a treaty between the Qing dynasty and the Kokan Khan. Now, putting this in perspective, the loss of these areas may not necessarily have been a big loss to the Qing dynasty. That is because there is an argument that these areas were always difficult to hold on to and maybe a bit unrealistic to try to hold on to those, that area. They were far away and the Chinese could only keep it if it provided it with the necessary military, social, and political support. With the treaty, the Qing dynasty was freed from any further obligation or duty to that area. Nonetheless, this particular military venture cost the Qing dynasty and China 10 million ounces of silver. Daoguan also had to suppress rebellions in Taiwan and the Hunan province. And the Chinese old friends, the Miao people, were back making noise in 1832 in the the three southwest provinces like they did before. There was also severe damage that had to be addressed with the dikes along the Yellow River. This was causing reoccurring flooding and local famine. By this time, the Grand Canal had become impassable and rice shipments had to be detoured to the sea routes. This exposed the shipments to pirates that I mentioned before were becoming an increasing menace. Compounding the rice supply issue and the expensive repairs that were needed to the Grand Canal, an entire industry of boatmen were unemployed that had worked on the Grand Canal. This only fanned discontent and concern. Separately and together, the events and circumstances I've spoken about may have been normal occurrences that would have been routinely managed. But these were not normal times. To no surprise to anyone listening to this podcast, opium had become a chief issue in the history and now the future of the Qing dynasty. It is vitally important, I believe, to understand that there is something larger going on here than opium and the Qing dynasty's issue with it. Opium might even be characterized as merely a symptom of bigger problems. Now, vast amounts of excellent books and articles and other materials have been produced on the opium wars in China and the effect these wars had on China. I am certainly not going to rewrite history or offer a revisionist view of that period of time. Certainly a fascinating subject. 
But the larger, bigger problem I was referencing a moment ago in the state of China was its governance and its standing among nations at that time. The period of this history, starting about now, is known as the era of unequal treaties. This is the big picture. This era of unequal treaties pretty much lasted until the end of the Qing Dynasty. I strongly believe some knowledge of this broad view that I just expressed is really important to better understand what is coming for China. And to set it up a little bit, I want to rehash what I generally covered in earlier episodes. I'll keep it brief. Foreign traders, primarily English, had been illegally exporting opium into China, mainly from India to China, since the 18th century. I've also discussed in the run-up to this area that the English wanted to find a way to balance its trade deficit with China. By 1820, however, opium imports into China dramatically grew. And the numbers are staggering. From 1810 to 1838, opium imports into China went from 4,500 chests, remember a chest is about 140 pounds, to 40,000 chests. That's right, 4,500 chests to 40,000 chests in a period of 28 years. By 1820, largely as a result of the opium sales, the balance of silver reversed in England's favor. Daoguang grew quite alarmed over this, and the millions of opium addicts in China, and the flow of silver leaving China. Of course, the number of addicts in China at this time can never be accurately calculated. Conservative estimates, however, place addiction at 10% of the adult population. That still would have been enormous. There was some discussion early in Daoguan's reign to legalize opium. The argument was that the more serious issue for China was the loss of silver. Legalizing opium would allow the Qing government to tax the opium trade. In any event, the outflow of silver from China increased about 2 million ounces in early 1820 to over 9 million ounces just 10 years later. By 1836, 1,800 tons of opium came into China every year, and this increased every day. Opium trade became so popular that the English East India Company began to hire English and American traders to smuggle opium into China. By the mid-1830s, 
the English East India Company had lost its opium monopoly, and in response, it lowered its price of opium to try to gain that back. That act of lowering the price of opium had devastating consequences in China. The Americans' involvement in the opium trade into China at this time mainly came, the opium mainly came from Turkey. The French also joined the opium bonanza too. And there were many Chinese, local Chinese, that exploited the opium trade to their own personal advantage. No surprise. Daoguan finally had enough. At this point in our story, enters a man by the name of Lin Zhishu. Daoguan appointed him to become essentially an opium commissioner. And his job was simple. Eradicate opium from China and prosecute anyone involved in its trade. China is now entering into what has been labeled the Opium Wars. And there would be two of them. After unsuccessful negotiations between Lin Zhishu and British trader rep- British trade representations failed, in the spring of 1839, he executed several actions that may have inalterably put China on a path of no return. He arrested 1,700 opium dealers and confiscated from the English dealers and destroyed over 20,000 chests of opium that were stored at Canton. The English were expectantly outraged and lodged their resentment to the emperor of this action. There was some attempt by the Chinese, some conciliatory effort by the Chinese, to placate the English. But the English rejected all that and instead sent its warships and troops to China. Later that same year, in an unrelated event, in an event called the, in Mandarin, Zhoulong, or in English, Kowloon Incident, several drunken several drunken Western soldiers killed a Chinese villager. Despite repeated requests from Lin Lin Zhishu, the English refused to turn over the assailants to the Chinese to face Chinese justice. Ironically, if convicted at that time, the assailants would face a far worse punishment under English law The Chinese law was far more lenient at that time. Matters only got worse. In 1840, the English Navy and Army showed up off the coast of China, and it began to attack Chinese coastal cities. The English quickly captured Canton and Guangzhou and secured the Pearl River, and the Hong Kong area. The English also secured the Yangtze River and the cities of Ningbo, Shanghai, Zhejiang, and Wusong, Dinghai, and Amoy, which is now known as Xiamen. Absolutely devastating. 
The Chinese counterattacked several times in several different places, but they were no match militarily for the English. One of these cities that the British captured was at the mouth of the Grand Canal, and the English blockaded it. And this resulted in rice and food shipments being, uh, preventing them from being moved around the country, and also it prevented the tax revenues coming in to Peking. Finally, the English in 1842 captured Nanjing, or its other name, Nanking. The Chinese then pursued peace negotiations with the English, and that resulted in the Treaty of Nanking. This was followed a year later by the Treaty of the Bulg, and then following this, the, then the following year, the Treaty of Wangxia. I think this is enough for one episode. Obviously, events are moving fast. And in the next episode, I want to spend some time about these events I just mentioned and other momentous events that were occurring too. They are important watershed moments. I will also conclude in the next episode Daoguan's reign and get a little bit into his successor's reign. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.